2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The crowd went crazy as Tommy left the stage. Bill Sally was lost for the price of a touch and a cash across her face. In 1967, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which, although not the first concept album ever made, is certainly the most popular. Over the years, bands like Pink Floyd and Jethro Tull and artists like David Bowie would expand and deepen the genre. But in 1969, Pete Townsend labeled his album Tommy a rock opera.
3: Tommy always starts
2: She knew from the start, deep down in her heart That she
1: and Tommy were worlds apart But her mother said, never mind your part is to be what you'll be
2: Opera is not just a label That one clip from Tommy has plot, exposition And a line worthy of Verdi She carries a scar on her cheek to remind her of his smile. The Who spent decades as one of the Big Four of the British invasion of American radio in the 60s. Big Four as in Beatles, Stones, Who, Zeppelin— Their arena shows earned them a reputation as the greatest live act in rock and roll. The brilliant Townsend wrote most of the songs and played lead guitar. Keith Moon and John Entwistle were the rhythm section, and the band's frontman is my guest today, the legendary Roger Daltrey. Daltrey's talent speaks through nuanced vocal styles over many years. And his raw energy, that looping swing of a microphone started with him, electrified the vinyl, then eight tracks, then cassettes that anyone my age remembers. Roger Daltrey is the rock star prototype. What we needed to be was a blokes band. The Beatles were writing songs
3: for the girls, they had them all screaming. The Stones, that were a game, were a girls' band, and so Pete, <laughs> Pete wrote songs for fellas. You know, and I—I
2: I, I could say this for like there a, a joke hand. Coming no, well, <laughs> well it's, maybe it's going to sound like a joke, but it's not a joke. And that is, you have no idea what you and your music has meant to me in my lifetime. It's—it it, you can't even measure it. You are it for me in uh-huh. terms of the range and the beauty and the no offense to other people but you have the range well, you can do I it also all i had the writer
3: i mean Townsend's music what a vehicle to, to see yeah. can you imagine what it felt like to be presented with those songs for the first time it, here are Roses'
2: demo see what you can do with this well describe well, describe what that was like meaning well, how was that process someone came to you with a tape and you sat with him and listened to a tape well you bring them into the studio
3: i mean uh, when can't explain he, we just played it at a rehearsal. That was easy. It was kind of a, a, a kinker-like song. You know? It was kind of a, uh, all day and all of the night. But again, you know, you really got me. And it was a tribute to the kinks, and it was a kind of easy song for me, as was Any Way, Anyhow, Anywhere, which he, we we finished writing on the stage at the Marquee in London. He had he had the, the verses, but he, he didn't have the middle eight, which I helped him with. with. That's why it's a co co-writing thing on that. And then we did My Generation and Substitute, of course, and they were really easy for me because we'd come from the blues and James Brown and all, all that he- heavy stuff. So that was easy to get my teeth into. And he just presented them, you know, and I just we just slammed away. We used to go into the studio and we used to have to make those records in probably two hours max. Yeah. You know, you make the whole album in four hours.
2: McCartney told me when I sat with yeah. him privately, he said to me, you know, we do two songs in the morning, we go have a cigarette and have a pint and go have a sandwich and come back and do two in the afternoon.
3: That's exactly do the whole right.
2: album in a week. Well, a week? They had a yeah. week? Yeah. Or two a, two well, days. Well, they were the Beatles. Yeah. Right, right.
3: <laughs> uh, but that's how it was. And then it was only um, uh, once I got presented with Happy Jack, <laughs> I had to think totally different about how I, as a singer, was going to sing Townsend songs and present them in, in any kind of way that I could hold my head up in the street.
2: <laughs> How so? <laughs> because, why?
3: Because, I I mean, Happy Jack. I mean, if you listen, Happy Jack wasn't old, but he was
2: a man. It's a very Germanic boom, boom, tone to it, boom, yeah.
3: Yeah, very. It's like umpa song. Yeah. I and mean, you know, I'm thinking, oh, you know, this is embarrassing. But, he, but Pete had written it and it became a huge hit. I don't know why, but it did. And then, of course, the next song he presents is "I'm a Boy," about a woman who wanted, uh, uh, who was having quads, and she wanted them all to be girls, and one of them turns up as a boy, but she treats it like a like a girl. <laughs> so it's mm. so, like so it's this little boy screaming to be heard, I'm a boy! <laughs> but my ma won't admit it. And then I thought, well, the only way I'm going to get round this at all is to kind of climb into Pete's head and into his psyche. Uh, was that a difficult thing to do? It was tricky, especially those early songs. And I listen back to them now. When I listened to them at the time, I used to be kind of embarrassed about my voice. I was never happy with the sound of it. I'd never done a good job on it. I had a kind of paranoia about it because it wasn't the kind of range I was used to singing in. It wasn't the emotion I was used to singing about. So I always felt that I failed. And it's only now and perhaps for the last 10 years that I listen back to them and they have a haunted quality about them, which is exactly right because he writes in a very unusual way, as you know. I mean, you see, Pete, very early on, got very shrewd and realised that later on it became much easier. Tommy became the vehicle that really developed me as a singer because it was an ongoing process uh, being slowly put together in the studio to develop this rock opera, which was going to be a single album, carried on into being this double album. And, of course... When you're in the studio that long working on a project, uh,
2: it just gives you more time to art- artistically experiment. So, is it, so just with, with that point there, is that where you begin like most commercially successful groups early on you're recording an album in two days? Is Tommy the first time you get to luxuriate in the studio and spend months making a single album?
3: Yeah, I mean it. It was ridiculously long time, but right. in those days, and the label didn't care. The, well, in those days, the, the labels kind of did what they were told by the bands, and that was once you were successful. Yeah, uh, you know they. We were invented this, inventing this industry that it became, and they were happy to let us get on with it. You know, they come in and have a listen. Obviously, I'm pretty sure they must have done. But this, obviously, and Kit Lambert, our manager at the time was always convinced that the pop song could be much, much more. And he always had this idea that if Mozart had written operas, why can't we have a rock opera? Mm -hmm. And how astute was he? because Tommy was the first rock opera. In my opinion, it's one of the best operas ever written. (laughs) Certainly got the most lyrics. sold the most copies. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And it's probably had had as as bigger audiences. That process of making Tommy in the studio got me to a certain level, but it was only after we then got into rehearsals of doing it live on stage, it just took off like a rocket. In a studio, you've got the comfort of being able to hear everything you sing, And so you can concentrate on, you know, all the little details that you think are important. And fine-tuning. Once you get on stage, it's all about giving it the wallop that you need to give it to get it out. Because you've got no monitors, you have to be a belter.
2: But why were you and the other three so great on stage? Meaning, I mean, you're t- again, I don't want to lay it on too thick here, but you're, you're going to be the unfortunate repository of all my fandom <laughs> here. And that is you guys are smart and right in the studio and your balls out on stage. Uh, That's I t- a rare t- combination. I
3: t- I, I think it's a really simple thing. When I put that group together, uh, uh, as each one of them joined me in my band, John Itmersall first, I knew that I had an ingredient that worked. Our biorhythms were similar. You know, everyone has a biorhythm that is a certain thing. I knew that John and I had something that was special. Same when Pete joined. Pete was obviously an enormous talent, immediately obvious, just by the guitar shapes he was playing. We'd never seen anything like it. And his right hand movement, you know, because he'd been a banjo player, he had this kind of, rhythm action to, to die for anyway then Keith Moon came along and all of a sudden all these individual bio rhythms came together and made the algorithm that then became The Who because The Who has a unique rhythmic pattern doesn't it it's, it's not like any other music out there and it's rock music it's on the one you know it's, 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 it's a slam rock and roll was music to screw to and the and, uh, Who's music was definitely music to fight to. Yeah. And that's what it was about. Yeah. Um, so once that algorithm that we had came together... It's like laying bricks. It's really weird. It's musical bricks.
2: I, I, I just want to say that, you know, what you mentioned about uh, that music being for young men, there's music where we knew there was a group of guys we had to go beat the shit out of across town that night, and that's when your music came on. Your music <laughs> was well, your, your music was the music we played in the locker room so as to get it. ready for the big game. That's right, yeah. The who got you on your feet. Yep, there was, but that's what we always tried to do. We always tried to
3: play our music to you. To move you. But I wouldn't want to and get... And like you me. say, it moved you to go
2: out fighting. But it moved me to tears as well. <laughs> well, some of its beauty, and that's what I want to get to, which is you grew up very poor. Yeah, very little money. But post-war England
3: had a lot going on for it that, that made it incredibly wealthy. We had incredible community. Uh, you know, I was born in a V1 raid in, in, in World War II. You know, and uh, so... Everything around us when we grew up was, had been levelled by bombs. Uh, and the war, to get through the war, all our aunties and uncles and our mothers and uh, our dads were away fighting the war, uh, but they were in the bomb shelters every night and, of course, drown out the bombs. They used to sing. So singing became a really big part of the community in those days. Every pub would have a piano and they would sing all these old these old musical songs and, and things, and we'd all sing them too. And, and everywhere how, you went, there would be people singing on the street. How old, how, old were you,
2: how old were you when you joined the boys' brigade? Uh, that would have been about 11. You're a boy. Yeah. Young yeah. boy. Yeah. What was singing to you like then? Were you self-conscious about singing? No. So From would, the beginning, you enjoyed it? Yeah. I sang
3: in a church choir when I was six or seven because I like dressing up. I knew I had a voice um, and the skiffle music came along. They were that earlier lead belly songs, chain gang songs. Bonnie Donegan, who was this guy in, in Britain who, who inspired me and people like Robert Plant to do what we did because he was just so free with his voice. We could play that music because it's, it's always three chords. So you've only got to learn three chords and you can play all those songs. And every street had a group, a skiffle group, which consisted of someone who got a guitar from somewhere. I made my first guitar. For a bass, you'd have a, an old tea chest, which was a two foot six square box, open one end, string through the middle of the top with a broomstick. A good player could make that sound like a double bass. And of course, for rhythm, you could take something from mum's kitchen and the washboard, <laughs> and you had a band. Um,
2: and that's where it all started. And the first time you played in front of an audience was when? How old were you?
3: It was a church hall youth club on a, on a Saturday night in Shepherds Bush. And, I, so, and my mate said to me, go and get up and sing a song. So I, I went up and uh, I think I did Hound Dog. For five minutes there with my hair soaped back, we couldn't afford any grease like <laughs> Elvis. But the soap worked wonders. And we all thought we could look like Elvis with the soap. Uh I did my version of of Elvis doing Hound Dog, and it was probably awful because that's right at the point when your voice is breaking. So, but I didn't have any worries about it. And what I did notice immediately there was a, a row of people kind of looking up, and I thought this is quite a nice position to
2: occupy. Some of them girls. <laughs> Most of them. Yeah. Some of them girls. <laughs> Most of them giving you that look. There's something about a voice, isn't it? I don't know why. We had Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad on this show. And he tells a story about He said, you know, you're on stage, man. He talks like this. He says, you're on stage. And the producer said, you know, you're really small down there. The people are way in the back. He goes, you got to do something big. You got to make it big. You got to give them a show. He goes, I want you to rip your shirt off in the middle of the show. And he looks at him and goes, what? He goes, I want you to, because Farner was really fit like you, very ripped kind of fit guy. He goes, I want you to rip your shirt off in the show. And Farner goes, okay. And in the middle of the show, he rips the shirt off. The girls go insane. They come to work the next day at the, the, the concert hall. There's a box of shirts in his dressing room. It's like, you're going to rip your shirt off every night now, <laughs> that's pal. That's it. Business,
3: that's exactly how it was. You, go, you find something. Making it up as we went along, you know. Uh, you know and that that worked wonders for me with that Tommy outfit that I uh, made. You know, it's all made out of chamois leather. Um, and but it was so wonderful to work in in a skin, in another skin, because it's so free. You know, it sweats with you, it breathes, and it, you don't get so hot as when you wear ordinary clothes. It was, oh, it was wonderful to wear that.
2: But when you when you have the four of you together for the first time, it's the detours, or that's the, it's the who? It, it was the detours. F- with the four yeah, of you. Yeah. And then you changed him to us. The Who. There was
3: five of us. We had a, we were a kind of Cliff Richard and the Shadows alike, you know, kind of doing the movements and everything. Very very corny. And then he was gone, the fifth one. Yes. He was, who, he, who, he, he, who was well, that? I mean, I, it, we had a, a singer called Colin Dawson who thought, thought he was Cliff Richard, but he wasn't, of course. Right. And um, he decided to become a bacon salesman. A we, 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 by this time, had seen a, a band called Johnny Kid and the Pirates... Uh, it, which you should look up because they made some great records. And that was the f- first three-piece band we'd seen as a rock band where they had a lead come rhythm guitarist, a bass player and a great drummer and a lead singer in black leather trousers and a black patch over his eye. And it was Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. They even had a backdrop hand-painted of a galleon. That This <laughs> <Really? and great. laughs> yeah. is a bar. You're know? <laughs> crazy. Yeah. But... uh they did great songs. They did "Shaking All Over," the original "Shaking All Over," you know that song, and they did "Need uh, a Shot of Rhythm and Blues," which the Beatles covered. That was Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, and the guitarist of that band was a guy called Mickey Green, and he played in a way where he, not only was he doing the rhythm, he'd do the leads as well. So there was a particular sound, and Pete got it immediately. So by that time, I was the lead guitarist when we had Peter's rhythm. But I was a sheet metal worker and sheet metal work and guitar playing don't really go together because my hands were shredded most nights yeah. we cut get caught in the cuts and all kinds of stuff so I was very happy to give up the guitar and all the time we've been doing these Cliff Richard songs we used to play for GIs in some of the clubs in London and they used to request things like Chuck Berry and you know some um, John Johnny Cash and Weird stuff. And I, uh, Roy Orbison, now Colin couldn't sing that, but I could. So I used to do some of the singing. And uh, so it became obvious that Pete should now become the lead rhythm guitarist. And I would be very happy just to become the singer. And that's when it changed. Your sheet metal career made you the lead vocalist of The Who. Yeah. (laughs) But, But it also made us our first electric guitars. We couldn't afford to buy them in those days, but we could make them. Well, I could make them. Very rudimentary things, but they worked. So the four of you, did you get a record deal when you were the detours? No, we were the detours uh, for quite a long while. Then we became The Who, and by then we were playing Chicago Blues mostly, starting to feed in a bit of James Brown, a bit of Tamla Motown, and uh, we got a new manager. So now we've got to find an image. And he recognised that there was this group of fashionistas coming up called the Mods, who were very sharp dressers, uh, fashion changing very quickly, in very tight suits, short haircuts, smart. And he said, they need a band for them, and you can be that band. And we kind of looked at him and said, yeah, and what will it involve? He said, well, first of all, the barber shop." And we went in to the barber's shop, as a Stones alike, and we came out as a bunch of mods <laughs> with short haircuts. Uh, immediately took us right around the corner to buy some mod clothes. So there we were, really, wol- wolves in sheep's clothing. And uh, he said, you can't keep the name The Who, that's not mod enough. I'm going to call you the high numbers. So we said, well, what does that mean? Where does that come from? And he said, well, the, this week's fashion bowling shoes that you have to steal from the bowling alley because it's got numbers on the back, you know, the, the size sure, of the, the shoe. the of the shoe. And, of course, the legend goes, that the bigger the feet. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the mods really got behind us as our fan base. We were their band, and then they would come and request their kind of music that they, and they were changing their music regularly. It, was, it went from kind of re, early reggae, what was then called Blue Beat, Prince Buster and all people like that. But by now, the blues for us have become a little bit tedious, the 12-bar. But with the aid of Keith Moon and and his very short attention span and double bass drum beat, yeah. <laughs> we could turn that into the feedback cycle and start inventing and be freeform, which will then bring the jazz influences that we we had. This is around one year. Us. Around about 1964, yeah. 64. 64, yeah.
2: When the high numbers go back to becoming the who again.
3: We're still the high numbers, but then we get another manager, which was Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp, fabulous creative managers. And they said, well, we don't like the name, the high numbers. Um, and we've heard you with The Who before that one. We think The Who is so the bad. right name. So they changed it back to The Who.
2: Now, in that way... Our fans were very confused. Right, right, for a while, they were. <laughs> it's funny, when you talk about the mod period and everything, you just start to see those images. You, just, you can even hear the lyrics in your head, you know. Zoot suit, white jacket with side vents, five inches long. You know, you'd hear yeah. all Quadrifinia. And it makes you think... Did Quadrophenia come in his mind before Tommy, but he put it on the shelf?
3: I think Quadrophenia came at the time he wrote it in '73. Right. right, but musically, you're right about the lyrics. Quadrophenia, it, it, every generation that comes around picks up that album and goes, somebody understands me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah, and we, we, we recently last year. We'd never been to South America before. We'd never been, you know, the who are crazy. We're nuts. All those years of touring, never been down to Brazil or, you know, Argentina or Chile, or any of those places. I only why? went to Mexico. I only went to Mexico five years ago. What, you guys didn't think you'd sell down there? Well, we just, we just, I don't know why we didn't get there. Don't ask who us. Called we, the, who called those shots? Lambert the and Stamp? I, no, uh, well, mostly on the touring side, it was Pete that called the and he just didn't want to go there. He said, "I, we have enough trouble f- fulfilling, you know, our crowd in in, in the states and, and the UK, so we never went down there." But anyway, we went down there last year. They knew every word of every song, and they were singing louder than we we played. Did that surprise Immensely. I mean, Mexico City. It was extraordinary, and they were all young people. They knew every word of every song.
2: But they need this. I mean, it's good music. You know, people want what's good. They don't care how, you know.
3: Yeah, it's good as long as you can deliver it properly. And if if we ever can't do that, then we'll stop. I don't ever want to go through the motions. The Who have never, ever done a show where we've dialed it in. And,
2: I can imagine. How's your and, voice it's now? It's great. You no. had some. You had some trouble with your throat.
3: Well, yeah, that was about that was about nine years ago. I had a. I've got a. I had a, a precancerous condition, but I found a, a Dr. C, Stephen Zaitels up at the Voice Institute in Massachusetts, in Boston, and he sorted me out. And my voice is fabulous now. It's it's a joy to sing, and all the time I can give it
2: the grit and the balls that it needs. I'll do it. Now, when you when you do a show, let, let's pick a, 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 a the difference between studio, recording. What was your preparation before you went into the studio or you went on tour? Well, you, you, have, you have to be like an athlete. You owe it to your audience. You train your voice? Tra- train the voice. like
3: You can't train a voice. You train all life out of it. Right. Some of the trained voices is what ruins good voices. Mm-hmm. You rest your voice. Obviously, if you had to sing eight shows a week on Broadway, you probably need... To, to go to that area where you get the sound of the trained voice. Personally, I don't particularly like it. But my voice is, I'm I'm very careful about resting it, and these days I'm not allowed to do two shows back-to-back. Back. I have to have a day in between. It's just out of respect for my voice. But then I can give it all the pedal that I need to give it. <laughs> Why not? And it is pedal. It's about foot to oh, the floor. This is, you know, this is singing from your ass. Um... But that's how it has Somewhere to be. Somewhere down there. Well, that's how it has to be yeah. you know, to, to get those songs into the vein of getting the who as it needs to be in my head anyway. And touch wood, my voice is is kind of looking after me at the moment. Oh man.
2: A seminal moment in the counterculture, Daltrey at Woodstock sings See Me, Feel Me from Tommy. There's earnestness and anger in Daltrey's voice. The band and the crowd took Tommy's rebellious message seriously. Another artist with a revolutionary sound is Tom York of Radiohead. York finds an almost giddy joy in hearing how his innovations spread into different music, sometimes very different. One of the best buzzes
1: really, is that thing where someone comes up, you know, I'm really into what they're doing, it's really fascinating and it's really totally new to me, but yet the occasions when... They fed off of you. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, how could, you, how could you feed off me? I don't
0: see any of my stuff my in what you're, what you're doing. My DNA, you But they see
2: it, and I'm like, <laughs> wow, that's so
1: cool. You know, people within hip-hop who are into Radiohead, I'm like, I mean, obviously, I'm massively into hip-hop, and we've, we use hip-hop as a reference
2: point in the way we build tracks and stuff, but, but really? Wow, that's bonkers. The rest of my conversation with Radiohead's Tom York at thing.org.
0: Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Live at Leeds, the greatest live rock album of all time, according to the New York Times and the BBC. Only halfway through the show, and already Daltrey's voice is ragged, when you can hear him pushing, literally shaking through the song's last stanzas. Roger Daltrey's intense physicality extends to his fists. He told me he had a bit of a short fuse.
3: But, I, you know, I think that came from being bullied at school. I'm a little guy. Yeah. I'm a very small guy. And the little ones always used to get bullied, as you know. It went on at school for quite a while until I, one day I picked up a chair and when they were starting on me and I just went in first with the chair and they left me alone. They all backed off. And I thought, well, this works. Right. Thought, well, this, works. Right. this is yeah. good. If they know but you what it no did fear. to me, it kind of made my f- fight or flight mode, uh, it, it tripped it into I would always fight. And if ever I felt that the threat was going to get out of hand, there's one thing a little guy can do against a bigger guy and that's to get the first punch in or the first kick or whatever. Or the glass region handshake. (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, You know, and then you might have a chance of surviving, but that's what it did for me. So, I, yeah, I kind of had a red mist and I... Uh, I used to have to rule the band with a bit of an iron fist
2: at the beginning because they, they were a lippy lot. <laughs> Is it safe to say, because you're a person who sings such you know long live rock and these blistering anthems you the band would sing, and then you you blow some of the most beautiful notes in music history, singing Sea and Sand and See Me Feel Me and all these other songs. Does Pete bring that out in you? His writing brings it out. it's in, it's in the lyrics. It's in the
3: melody. You know, a lot of his demos, when he writes them, are very, very different than the finished product that I often give him, especially towards the latter years of our career. I try and make each song have a starting point and take you on a journey through it. Rather, A lot of songs kind of start and they get to a a level and they stay there all the way through to the end. I've always tried to make whose songs climb a ladder rather than it being flatlining from, a for a while. You know what I mean? Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, Brown Sugar comes out. They come out gun, guns blazing on a lot of those songs, the Stones. Yeah. They start here. You know, whereas you say you want to kind of move around inside the song. I did
3: the whole of Tommy this summer with with an orchestra uh, and a rock band, and it's phenomenal. That's exciting. That's, that, that's like a new classical music when you hear that. Yeah. I've had these orchestrations done by a guy called David Campbell, who's the father of Beck. Of course. But um, it's elevated Tommy to
2: where I, I believe it should be now. So exciting to play. It's wonderful. Cameron Crowe, when I did a movie with him, got me the vinyl copy that I worship of the LSO with the gleaming ball on top on the oh, cover. Right, yeah. And they have yeah, all the well, different this, people. That's, that's just an orchestra. Yeah, yeah. This is a rock well, that's band. That's all the guest artists And an orchestra. It, yeah.
3: And I've got to tell you, there's not one piece of this orchestration where the orchestra's playing anything like a keyboard pad. You know, you know what I mean? Right. It's all melodic, interesting, uh, percussive instrumentation. It's incredible. Did you really record it? I'm going to release possibly the Bethel concert, which is the Woodstock site, as you know. Right. Because uh, it's the 50 years of, of, of Tommy in March. And of course, next year's 50 years of, of Woodstock. Yeah. Which is Tommy made us made really made How out gonna career. Get yeah. So I'm I, yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna release it as a solo album as a you know a, a, as a performance. Then I'm gonna ask Pete if he'd like to overdub some guitar on it, and then it can be the Who. I want it out there for the record because it's an
2: incredible piece of work. It pe- really is. Pe- people always talk about Moon and the legend of Moon and Moon being a very, uh, I'll say it as politely as possible, being a very colourful character. You, know,
3: <laughs> you would have loved him. You would have adored, everyone adored Moon. Yeah. You also would have hated him. Right. You also would have said,
2: I can't stand him. He would have warned me out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Ed Whistle, who also died uh, young, he was not that old and w- when he died from a drug overdose as well, correct?
3: Uh, well, it was a heart attack, oh, on, you know. Whatever, but John was, was unconditional with the way he lived. He wanted to live the life of a rock and roll star. He did. You know, the, the sad thing about John's death was the fact that the Hard Rock Casino in Las Vegas, where he died in bed after a line of Coke and whatever else he'd taken that night, didn't put a glass case around him. And open it as an exhibit. Because, see, John would have loved that. And John, that to John,
2: that would have been. He gave his life for
3: rock and roll. I have made it. (laughs) (laughs) But but he was the first one. You recruited. This is the way to go.
2: But he's the first one you recruited in the band. He was kind of a real mate of yours. And I remember saying to McCartney one time, he said to me, they were always telling them, you know, here's the best drummer in London that you should have, and you're going to replace this guy. And he said, no, 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 no. It's got to be these four people. It's these four, this is my band, these four. But we all felt like if, if if Ringo leaves and you get another guy in there, we ain't doing it. No, that's
3: right. It's never, and is that how you felt about oh the other yeah. three? No, definitely. You no, change you one can, element, it's not going to be as good. No, and it took a long time to f- find the missing missing link that when Keith died, uh, we put Kenny Jones in, in the band, who's a fabulous drummer, Kenny Jones. But he, mm. he was a drummer from Small Faces. But can you imagine putting Keith Moon in the faces? Yeah. It would have been chaos, you know. Right. But equally, it was disastrous putting Kenny Jones in the who. The algorithm didn't work anymore. It was like, ha- like having a square wheel on a car. I love Kenny as a mate, and it was incredibly difficult to have to say to him, I can't work with you, Kenny. It just doesn't
2: work How you. long did you work with him?
3: Uh, it went on for about uh, four years. How Three. many albums did you record with him? Uh, we, did, we did two. Um, We did uh, face dances, and it's
2: hard. Did Pete feel the same way? No, well, initially he said he didn't, but my intuition told me that Pete knew. Um, Woodstock, obviously, for many, many people... You know there are people who are musical sophisticates, and they know even before Rolling Stone shows up and things like that. They find what is music in clubs, and they're much more, uh, you know, kind of savvy. For me, I was a bit younger. The first time I become aware of you is because of Woodstock. Woodstock is what what, what yeah. introduces me to the Who. I don't know where you're at in your career in terms of success. Are you helicoptering into no, Bethel I mean, that, that, or describe you know, that experience? I was in Connecticut with my soon-to-be wife Heather
3: and a a mother and father, and we were watching the news and it had about this festival that we were due to play the following day, this was the Friday, and how the governor of New York had declared the area a disaster zone because of all the, the mud and the rain and the lack of food and the lack of this and the lack of that medicine, and the bad behaviour yeah. and the, the kind of medicine that was the wrong kind of medicine that was getting <laughs> in and how all the roads had been blocked and the state police had blocked everything off and how everybody was having to be flying in a helicopter to even get to the site. Well, how are we going to get there? Uh, and, and Heather's father, he just said, well, well, we'll I'll drive you there in, in the Volkswagen. And they had a Volkswagen Beetle. And so Herbie went to Woodstock. We, we jumped in the Volkswagen Beetle on the morning of the, of the uh, that Saturday morning. And we drove all the way to Bethel. Uh, and every time we came to any kind of roadblock, we just, we just drove through. Yeah. We got there. It was chaos, yes, it was all those things, but it wasn't like they were presenting it on the news Uh at all. Um, It wasn't as bad. No, and we drove into the site in in the the obligatory uh, Hertz station wagon, which every group used to have in those days. Um, So that was myth made up by the fake news on the television. You went on what time? Well, we were due to go on at 9 o'clock at night. You gear yourself up psychologically and you get your energy to be peaking at the time you hit the stage so that you're ready to to deliver to your audience everything that they deserve to be given. And uh, we were all ready by 9 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, on we go. And there was hardly anything to eat. We had hardly anything to eat, hardly anything to drink that wasn't laced with some Something or the other, Some herb. Yeah, um, and by the time we got on stage, so much of the equipment had broken down. It was a, it was all a bit hit and miss, but for some reason or the other, it seemed to it seemed to capture a moment of the period, the struggle that 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 age You know, we we tend to forget now that that was that whole generation. They were living with the Vietnam War, the horror of it, and you know, so many of them being drafted. I remember Pete kicking Abby Hoffman off the stage, <laughs> making his political speech. This, this is not, the, we don't need any more politics. <laughs> if you get up here again, I'll kill you. <laughs> Peace, lava, rock and roll.
2: <laughs> now, when you, because we had Peter Frampton on this show. And Frampton talked about um, they go out now and do this uh, legacy album thing where they play the album in its entirety from start to finish, the way the album is performed. Are you guys doing Quadrophenia start to we finish? We did it.
3: We did it not too long ago, didn't right. we? We did it in uh, two thousand and thirteen. How did it go? Fantastic. We did, it was a, Yeah, we did the whole the whole piece right. as a stage piece, and it's it, it it's a it's a good piece. We might revisit it at I'll invite you along. Did you did you record that? Yes, there is a there's a DVD of it. Get it. It's really uh, good. Have you? you performed? Where did you perform? All out, everywhere. Madison Square Garden. Why didn't you come? Oh, you, you did a few. you obviously
2: them. on a film. Well, I was, well, or, or yeah. You were obviously either a I remember, got four. I what? got four kids. Yeah, I know. Well, I got four kids, five and under, and I'm 60. Got, I got a five month old. I've got eight. Yeah, you got a hundred kids. I'm told. <laughs> I, 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 I read some racist? of this book. You got about hundred kids. I'm told. <laughs> yeah, that's what that brings me to my other question. I got two more questions for you i got a thousand questions. You've been married for a long time. Yeah, very long and time. And you speak very lovingly about your wife in the book. hmm And uh, what's your secret? Uh, I found the right woman, and I found a woman
3: who, uh, very early on, um, she understood the industry we're in, which, is, as you know, is very difficult to have any, any kind of relationship in long term unless you have incredible goodwill and understanding and truly love each other. Mm-hmm. She wanted to get married because we wanted to have children. And I said, well, I'll marry you, but, you know, you know what band I'm in and you know what I'm like. I'm never going to be that faithful husband. You, you laid you my, your cards you, on the you, table
2: that much, like right oh, out there. Oh, yeah, I have
3: to. yeah, and you have, But you have to do it up front. You can't do it after the occasion. And I did it up front and Heather accepted it. Um, you know, I wasn't as bad as I could have been because of that. Um, uh, and, you know, here we are 51 years later and we're true partners and we're you true partners Now, she in our
2: and your life. kids when their kids were school age you and she have three kids together
3: we got three kids and when
2: together. you when they were school age would they go with you on the road or did you always leave sometimes them home in England sometimes they did to go on the school?
3: 89 tour they all came out and that was wonderful but it was really quite kind of funny when my kids first saw me on stage <laughs> and kind of kind of thought you know um, and i could hear them talking they were kind of like 6 or 7 years old and my, my little girls and their friends were talking and I could hear my daughter say, my dad's a, a rock star. And the other little girl said, yeah, but my dad takes the train to London every day. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's funny you know
3: which is so wonderful you go oh this is
2: this is real life <laughs> isn't it amazing how you 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 try to tell it to people's kids you you uh, i've met famous especially famous musicians you know acting is so ephemeral like who's good and who's great and what works and what doesn't work is a lot of, music's much more pure
3: i agree with you and there's also something about music I, I don't know whether it's the same today but it used to be so you could always remember exactly what you were doing when you first heard that track. Oh, yeah. There's something about I was rock that joint music line when on you the first floor. heard Buddy Holly singing. That will be the day. Wow! Did that turn our heads when you heard, first heard Elvis singing? You know, Heartbreak Hotel. Woo! You know,
2: Little Richard singing. You know, Lucille. Woo! When I was going to do. Lip Sync Battle on Jimmy Fallon. Uh, I didn't do it, but I was going to do it. And they said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do Baba O'Reilly. And they said, you can't do that. I go, why? They go, because you can't spin the mic. You're going to smash the lights up in the TV studio. I couldn't. Who taught you how to do that? Where did you get that idea to take that mic and throw that mic? I didn't, no one taught me. I just, I got, you just did it yourself. I
3: just, I used to, once I went into the free form in the early days, the late 60s, it just came out of boredom. I was, you know, I couldn't stand there and be like Robert Plant. I wasn't cool enough. I just needed to dance, but I didn't want to dance like a an ordinary dancer. So I just started to play with it, and it just got bigger and bigger and channel the energy, and and channel the energy. And then Pete started jumping, and that legendary (laughs) jump of his. Is it windmill? He's like a kangaroo, wasn't he? (laughs) And uh, but the whole thing was kind of in with the music. It became like a ballet, didn't it? It was kind of extraordinary. And And when I think back and I look at some of those, there's one piece of film that I've seen recently somebody showed me the Freddie Mercury tribute concert at at, uh, at Wembley Stadium I had the rotten job of being the first act out on the stage but take a look at it it's on YouTube you can you can watch it what an entrance <laughs> I'm spinning that mic and, and it's wonderful to see the fear on Brian Mays' face. <laughs> this thing is flying everywhere. And it misses him every time. I've never hit anyone but myself with it, fortunately. Only, only one person. Um, but that, that was deliberate. And
2: I was quite pleased with that. We, we, we could possibly make an effort. I'm sure we would make an effort. Although we, he, we, I think we tracked... Uh, when Townsend was in New York to promote his book a couple of years ago, we and we made a stab at trying to uh, lasso him in here to do the show. How does he look back on all that work that you guys did? Is he proud? I
3: think he is. He's got to be. We're having a great time on stage now. For the first time in our career, the last, well, since 2013, has been an absolute joy. Who's the band now? The band is very different. We've still got Zach Starkey, uh, Pete Townsend and me, uh, We've got the band that I go out touring solo with. We've got uh, Lauren Gold on keyboards. Frank Symes is our music director. Simon Townsend, Pete's brother, of course, who's a fabulous rhythm player. Uh, we've got John, a guy called John Button on bass, and a guy called John Corey on keyboards. That's the the, the lineup we need to do Quadrophenia because there's there's so much music and instrumentation in it. You know, you need that. Yeah, we've been get, getting reviews that as good as anything we ever got in the 70s, which I'm so proud of, to be this age and
2: know that you're still delivering it in the right way. I'm going to name three songs out of the countless songs you sang. And you tell me, was it easy or hard for you to sing this song? Because I'm curious about something that's a really ripping kind of a lot of notes. So to sing See Me, Feel Me. A piece of cake. Easy. It just came.
3: Yeah, yeah. Absolute um, easy as anything. Easy. Easy, easy. I went back
2: to being a choir boy. Um, Love, Rain or Me? That was really, really easy. Incredibly
3: uh, painful to hear Pete's remark when he first heard it. I don't like it. Why? He didn't like it. He didn't hear it the same way I... See, this again, is, again, like I was talking about earlier, how I would interpret his songs very differently sometimes than he, than he kind of wrote them. And he, he wrote it as this gentle love song. Love, rain on me. And I I thought this is the last song on the album. Uh, and, you know, you know, the songs... Uh, uh, you rip it in the uh, end. Uh, uh, <laughs> just needed to be primal. It was... You know, it it needed to be out to the, into space, you know. Uh, so I did that ending that I do, and he hated it. He didn't like it at all. And it, it, was, it was kind of that, that hurt at the time, and it hurt because he said it quite a bit in the press at the time. So it, that was kind of weird. But it, equally, I still carried on singing it that way.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't have any effect on your choices. Yeah. No, no, no. What's a song you sang that you got? either talked into or you even talked yourself into singing a certain way and you didn't like it and it turned out to be a great hit. Happy Jack. Happy Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah
3: it was. It was it was a hit record. I couldn't could
2: could not believe it.
3: I just could not believe it. This record's a hit record. I just never ever heard it. And it's one of the few ones today I kind of, when we start to revisit the hits, I kind of go,
2: forget that one. And and, and over the years, you did or did not do much songwriting with him? Did he do it no, all? No, no,
3: no. I, I, you know, I've written a few songs, but I'm no songwriter in the caliber of Pete Townsend. Right. I co-wrote uh, Any Way Any How You with him, but, but that was it. And I've written songs of my own, you know. But... Uh, For the who, it, you left it to him? I, well... It, uh, when you're i you know, I'm like you. I'm such a big fan of his. I am such a fan of his. Yeah. And the more I let him have his reign in his head, the the, the better the stuff
2: becomes. I mean, if you try and interfere, you know you probably screw it up. But I'll never forget you guys went on tour in the U.S. and they put you, I think it was on the cover of Newsweek. And I I do believe, sometimes I don't trust my memory anymore, but I do believe I'm I'm precise in this one. Which you had one of my favorite lines of all time, you. And they quoted you as saying, you said, nobody writes songs like Pete. And no one sings Pete's songs like I do. (laughs) That's the definition of the you know what me when I was a kid? I thought to myself, I was like a, kid, like a little, like I was young. I forget how old I was. And I thought, any band that puts an album out with a song on it called A Quick One While He's Away, I thought, I got to meet this band. I any, gotta band introduce myself. any band
3: that had, a, had a, a song called A Quick One While He's Away and would play it to a Herman's <laughs> Hermits audience. <laughs> young people, they're probably only 11, 12,
2: 13 years old. Like, ah. The name of the book is thanks a lot Mr. Kibble White the name of your yeah, teacher yeah. who bounced you out of school yes and made you the star that you are today <laughs> yeah you thanks a lot Mr. K- and I, I want to say truly you are for my money the greatest rock and roll singer of all time thank you for doing this with us
3: it's an absolute pleasure I'll do it any time for you. you and I'll tell
2: Pete Pete you got to do it for him Pete you've got to do it for me From Quadrophenia to go out on From 1973 Daltrey captures the melancholy Of Pete Townsend's lyric His character, a disillusioned Who fan, sits looking for Meaning on a cold beach in Brighton There's all of the lost Promise of the 1960s In that voice That was the incomparable Roger Daltrey This is Alec Baldwin And you're listening to Here's the Thing Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
0: A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
2: Wait! Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California
2: is the ultimate playground
0: at visitcalifornia.com.
1: We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, A-L-L. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope.